Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So grateful for uh, this time uh, together here in the room and on the live stream. Uh, grateful for this time to gather in the name of the Lord, to have this time of worship. The Lord has blessed us. Amen. The Lord has blessed us. We're going to be in 1 Kings uh, 19, so uh, grab your uh, paper analog Bible or get that up on your uh, phone or iPad, but let's have the Word of God open in front of us as we uh, work through this uh, chapter together. I'm going to start with a quote from A.W. Tozer that really kind of lays it out uh, where, where we're going with this message. For the Christian, humility, and that's the thing we're talking about today is humility. For the Christian, humility is absolutely indispensable. Without it, Without humility, there can be no self-knowledge, no repentance, no faith, no salvation. And what Tozer uh, wrote, uh, James, uh, in the book uh, titled for him in the Scriptures, James wrote this, God opposes the proud. Can I just pause there and just say, like, you never want to be in a place where God is opposing you. You agree with that? Like, you never want to be in a place where God opposes you, and He opposes the proud, so don't be proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And He implored us on that basis a little bit later in the same chapter, James 4, uh, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. God's going to lift you up. God's going to esteem you. God's going to bless you. And so just rest in Him and be humble before the Lord. And of course, this is exactly what was modeled for us in the Savior Himself. We read uh, the Apostle Paul's words in the book of Philippians, where he said this, Philippians 2, 7 and 8, Jesus made Himself nothing. Jesus, the Son of God, very God of very God, made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, as we wrap up this series thinking about what it means to remain humble, uh, we're going to look at Elijah's worst moment. I mean, how would you like it if your worst moment was enshrined in Scripture. Would you like that? Just think about your worst moment. You said, I'd rather not. But just your worst moment recorded for all of history in the Scriptures, well, Elijah has that pleasure. <laughs> Elijah's worst moment, he was depleted, he was broken, and he had allowed pride to seep into his heart and into his mind as we so often do. Even if we're determined to be humble before the Lord, isn't it true that pride can still seep in, can still affect us, can still take us to a bad place? But God lovingly met Elijah in that dark place and led him to a place of humility and at least on the path to healing. And I have to believe that this message, this very simple message about humility is for us today as we consider how as Christians we can remain humble especially, especially when things are going our way, but even when things are not going our way. So we've, we've already prayed for our time in the Word. We're going to read the Scriptures as we've been doing in this little series. We're going to read the Scriptures as we go here on the screen and in your notes. You see the big idea, when everything goes your way, remain humble. When everything goes your way, remain humble. Five principles we're going to look at. First one is this, pride says, ride the high. 
Pride says, ride the high, but humility reminds me that I'm always vulnerable. Ride the high, experience and enjoy the win. Cherish your successes. Humility reminds me in the face of that that I'm always vulnerable. That is, as a human being, I'm always vulnerable. Now, in the text, the high that we're talking about here was what we saw in uh, chapter 18 when God defeated the prophets of Baal through the prophet Elijah. And it was an incredible victory that resulted in a revival in Israel, the people turning their hearts, setting their hearts back on the Lord. Revival broke out. And we might expect that Elijah was, in fact, riding the high of this incredible victory that we saw in chapter 18. But then we read verse 1 of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel, and Ahab's the king of Israel. Jezebel is his queen. She's not Jewish, but Phoenician. She's from the area where the Baals were created and worshipped. So Ahab the king told Jezebel the queen, she's really the problem. Okay, she's the one who brought Baal worship to Israel. Ahab told Je- Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets, uh, the prophets of Baal, with the sword. Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, because they didn't have texting back then. So she sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In case you missed it, that is a death threat, okay? That's not a veiled death threat. That is exactly a death threat, very clear. And you might think that Elijah, hearing that from Jezebel, from Jezebel's messenger, in fact, would simply stand up to the messenger and say, you know what, tell Jezebel to bring her best. I've already bested 450 prophets of Baal. I can best Jezebel. But no, that's not his response. In fact, in verse 3, look at the first part, then he was afraid. It's absolutely mind-boggling to imagine that, that the man who set up the destruction of the 450 prophets of Baal would now be afraid of one woman. That he would be afraid, in fact, of any one single person after what he had seen and experienced. How could he be afraid after seeing God do what he did? Now, I want you to take that question. I just want you to park it over here for now, because we're going to come back to it. Okay, the question is, how could he be afraid after seeing God do what he did? We're parking it over here. Now, sometimes what the Lord does, when I have a passage in front of me, I'm not going to say this happens every week, but sometimes when I have a passage in front of me and I'm prepping for the Sunday, I'll have what I just call intersecting conversations that contribute to my understanding of the text and help me with the sermon. I just have these conversations, not that I seek them out necessarily, they just come my way. And as I was prepping for this message uh, this week, I had a conversation with someone in my office on Thursday, a counseling student, really helped shape some things. I hadn't intended it, but it was really shaping some thinking around this. Then on Thursday night, we had the leadership series here. We started season three of that. Rich Birch was here. Uh, that uh, lesson that he gave on Thursday night is now um, on the, the leadership uh, series website. And um, he talked about the dip of doubt from Habakkuk, and it was just so uh, powerful, and it contributed again to my understanding of what was going on here in the text. And then I had a couple of uh, intentional conversations with our soul care team about this passage as well. Now, here's what we know. From all of that collected and, and my study, here's what we know about the way God made us as humans 
and how that has been affected by sin. And we all understand that, our, that the creation is marvelous, and God looked at it, and He said it's, it's good, and then He said it's very good after He made humans, and the, the creation's wonderful. We, we look at the creation, we marvel at the thing that God did, but understand that the creation has been tainted by sin, and so we talk about not just the creation and how awesome it is, but we talk about the marred creation, that everything about the creation isn't quite as great as it was when God first made it because sin has tainted everything in the world. And so we're talking about marred creation. Whenever we talk about humanity and what we're capable of and how God created us, we're talking about marred creation. And as marred creation, we easily lose perspective. We lose our ability to process at a higher level when we are depleted physically, mentally, emotionally, and that can lead to, follow me now, that can lead to irrationality, depression, despair, and a host of other outcomes. To say it another way that I'm sure we could all identify with here, if you're exhausted, if you have strained relationships around you, if there are anxiety-inducing circumstances in your life, financial pressure, or we all experience lockdowns for the last year and a half, or deadlines that are pressing in upon you, we have these anxiety-inducing circumstances. Listen, we may have difficulty believing things that are true. Simply because of our depleted state and the circumstances around us, we may have difficulty believing things that are true. We can't process truth in other words, we can't process truth through the fog of the deficit that's in our physical and mental body. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? And Elijah's a living example of that. That's exactly what we see going on in the text. So we come back to that question that we parked over here. We're going to bring that back now. How could Elijah be afraid after seeing God do what he did? And the answer is he was exhausted. He was exhausted physically, he was exhausted mentally, he was exhausted emotionally, he was depleted, he had nothing left in his tank. The needle was on empty and past empty and the warning light was on and he was running on fumes and hoping to pull into a filling station. And this physical, emotional deficit that he had in his life prevented him from believing that God could once again rescue him. It literally blocked his ability to be able to process that. He couldn't think it. And the first step to recovery is being humble enough to recognize before we get to the crisis, okay, before we get there, humble enough to recognize that we are always vulnerable as human beings. Just don't believe that any high is high enough to keep you there. That any success will be enough for you. That, that you have enough going on in your life that it's going to ward off any bad things ever happening. We are always vulnerable as human beings, no matter how strong we are. How strong we think we are. And that's even true for us as Christians. And we have, we have the Holy Spirit resonant inside of us, indwelling us as the followers of Jesus Christ. And it's true for us. Spurgeon said this quick line that I think captures this sense here. Humility is the proper estimate of oneself. I know myself. I'm humble enough to recognize that I'm vulnerable. 
that there's a weakness in me. And I don't ride the high of whatever great things are happening in my life right now without also reminding myself that I need to remain humble. I need to be aware of my vulnerability. So that's kind of our starting point. Here's a second principle that's going to help move this even further along. Pride says, I'm out of here when it gets tough. Pride says, I'm out of here. But humility looks to God for strength. Now, Elijah, he's fearful. Verse 3 continues, Elijah arose and ran. Okay, this is him saying, like, I'm out of here. He arose and ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he runs to the far south. Remember, he's a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He, he leaves Israel. He goes all the way through the southern kingdom of, of Judah. He's now at the bottom end of Judah. He's at Beersheba, and he gets to Beersheba. And in an act of showing just how despairing he is, he releases his servant. Just like, I don't need your services anymore. Here's your severance pay. I hope you find some other meaningful work. We're done. Thanks for your years of service. He, he, he lets his servant go. And then he goes even further south. I mean, this guy's on the run, verse 4. A day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree that provided him a little bit of shade from the desert sun. And then he asked, this is how far he's fallen, he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough. It's enough. I've just, I'm I'm at the end, Lord. Oh, Lord, take, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And a reference to those who had already died. He says, I'm as, I'm as good as dead. He's so desperate. He's afraid. He's broken. He's wishing for death. But then this little, little glimmer of hope, really all, all that we have here, he does one thing that could actually begin the process of turning this around. Verse 5, he lay down and he slept under a broom tree, went to sleep. Now, some of the reasons why a person might need counseling, some of the, some of the reasons why a person might need counseling are they're complex and they require extensive therapy and multiple counseling appointments and working through processes. But sometimes we have problems that could just be solved by having a nap. Do you believe that? Like sometimes we just lost perspective and it's like, you know what you need to do? Just go have a nap. Just, just get some sleep, get some rest, and that's going to help you regain some perspective. And God makes his move precisely at the moment where Elijah goes to sleep and, and starts to get some rest. And behold, an angel touched him. This is verse 5. An angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. So the guy's sleeping. This is like those moments where the nurse comes into the hospital room and you're sleeping and she wakes you up to give you your sleeping pill? That's what this moment is. <laughs> Any nurses here that are really upset with me right now? But you know this story, right? The nurse comes in, you have to have your sleeping pill at a certain time. They wake you up to give that to you. And the angel kind of does that right now. He's sleeping. And then the angel says, arise and eat. Wake up, it's time to eat. Now listen, he had two needs and let's give the angel the benefit of the doubt. After all, this is an angel. So let's give the angel the benefit of the doubt and say, he, Elijah had gotten enough rest up to this point that it was now okay to wake Elijah up and to say, you know what? The other need that you have right now is you need to eat something because you're so depleted physically. It's not just about you sleeping through this crisis, but you also need to eat. 
And so he feeds him. And notice how simple this is. The first step in helping a person who has experienced a disorienting crisis is not the delivery of truth. I'm going to say that again. The first step in helping a person who has experienced a disorienting crisis is not the delivery of truth, but the delivery of sleep and a meal. Verse 6, and he looked and behold, this is Elijah, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and he drank and he lay down again. More rest. This is exactly what I'm going to do this afternoon. I am depleted. You can imagine. I was up very early this morning. I prayed. I prepped. I got ready for this. I've now preached twice, greeted people, talked to people out in the tent. I've done all of that. By the time I'm done this, I've sweat through my shirt. I'm exactly, completely um, exhausted. I'm hungry. I'm going to go home. I'm going to eat a meal, and I'm going to fall asleep on the couch watching golf. (laughs) Then I will wake up, and I will eat again, and I will watch football And then because it's Sunday, uh, this particular Sunday, I'll come back for a man up. But that's my pattern, and that's the pattern that we see happening here. He gets more rest. Every guy, I don't know about women, but I know every guy, when you've had a big meal, the number one thing you want right after that is, I just want a nap. I just want a nap. So it's rest, eat, rest. But notice, there's been no counseling yet. There's been no delivery of truth. God, through his angel, has not said anything to him about where he's at. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat. More food. Food. Sorry, rest, food, rest, food. The pattern repeats. Verse 8, and he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food. 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Mount of God. And verse 9 starts out by saying, and there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. He's still resting. It's still Sabbath for him. He's still still in a place where he's pulled back from everything else. He's away from relationships. He's away from ministry. He's away from all the pressures of the things that he used to do before, all the activity. He's still resting. And God, through his angel, is resolving the physical issues that are blocking his ability to process the events that were happening around him. Elijah's solution was, and the word for this, the base instinct that we have, is flight. He fled his situation. He said, I'm out of here. But God intervened in the midst of his flight. God intervened to begin Elijah's recovery, and Elijah gladly received the simple care that the angel was providing for him. In other words, he invited God through the very simple means of rest and food. He invited God to care for him, and in that, Elijah is at the very least, at the very least, Elijah is indicating that he knows he needs the strength of God because his own was gone. And for us, how does God do that for us? Well, Sabbath is built into the rhythms of of our lives, and we ought to have weekly, we ought to have a regular time of rest for sure, but sometimes the crisis crashes in and shatters that. The primary way that uh, God meets our need in this way is by giving us actually one another. He gives us the church. And in times when we're depleted, lost, broken, 
shattered by circumstances, God wants us to lean on one another. He wants us to care for one another in the church, to be strength to one another. In fact, our small group ministry does life together for this very reason. Let's gather people together in tens and twelves and their families, and let's care for one another and do life together. And in so many of Paul's letters, as he's writing to specific local churches, and he's telling them, this is the way that you become the church and you play out your part as the church. A little sampling of that. Um, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. In other words, be there for each other when you're riding the high, rejoicing. Be there for each other when you're riding the high. Celebrate that. But you should also be there when you want out, when it's like, I'm out of here and I'm escaping and I'm fleeing this. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. To the Galatians, he wrote this in chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Come alongside each other when it gets hard, when you're gripped by sin, when you're struggling with some matter of faith. Come alongside one another and, and put your shoulder to the weight and help them carry that. And then a verse I think of so often before I, I come here on Sundays, thinking about all the different people that we could see. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And that's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to, to be the body of Christ. Jesus gave His life to do that very thing, to bear our burdens, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. All of this, Jesus did for us through His sacrifice. And so don't run, don't run to give counsel to someone who you think is straying from the path of truth. Don't run to give counsel without first considering whether or not someone needs rest, whether you need to just buy them a coffee or buy them lunch or have them to your home. It's so simple. It's so practical. And what's awesome about this is everyone can do it. This isn't the kind of thing where you go, you need special gifts to do this, you need some special ability, or this is the kind of thing pastors do, or this is for our soul care team, or this is a small group leader's responsibility. This is literally everyone's responsibility to care for one another. We can all do it. All right, here's a third principle. Pride says, you're all that. Pride says, you're all that, but humility puts me in my proper place. We don't really like the sound of that, to be put in our place, but God wants us to be in our place relative to who He is. And since the Garden of Eden, the, the devil has been trying to get us to believe something very different than that. He doesn't want us to, to see ourselves in our proper place, but He wants to put us in someone else's place, in God's place. In fact, the very first temptation was exactly that. As the a serpent was talking to Eve, Genesis 3, 5, he said, you know, on the day you eat the fruit, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. That is to say, 
You're going to assume God's rightful place, and you're going to decide for yourselves what's good and what's evil. That's God's place, but that's where the devil tries to take us. And that's humanity's greatest dilemma. That's our crisis. But in Christ, we gain the proper worldview and see the depravity of our hearts. We see our rebellion against God. And in faith, we humbly bow before him. We assume our proper place in the creation. And as created beings, we know that we are made in the image of God. When We're in the image of God. So again, it's awesome. So we're not going to trivialize that. We're not going to be demeaning toward ourselves because we know we're the creation of God. But we are going to recognize that we are just that. We're the creation. We're not the creator. We're going to recognize and know our place before God. Uh, Rick, Warren, Rick Warren said this. It's often mistakenly attributed to C.S. Lewis. Uh, Warren built this quote off of a couple of paragraphs in Mere Christianity that Lewis did indeed write, but this quote is Rick Warren's, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I'm trying to get myself into the proper place. I'm not demeaning myself because I am a child of God, but I'm not God. So back to Elijah, he's rested, he's fed, And he's getting to the place now where he's ready to receive truth. The counseling appointment can start. So God begins walking Elijah through the truth of this. Verse 9, partway through. Behold, notice the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Starts with a question. He wants Elijah to unpack what's been going on in his life. And immediately, again, I thought back to the, the garden in Genesis 3, 9, when uh, after they had fallen and sin had entered in the world and God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he's looking for Abraham and he says, where are you? Where are you? Now listen, the, the question to Elijah and the question to Adam are not about geography. Okay, they're not about what actual physical location that he's found himself in. He's trying to get Elijah to come back to that question, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's trying to get Elijah to reflect on where he's at emotionally and spiritually, not physically. In other words, the question is, how'd you get to such a bad place, Elijah? God's doing soul care. He's going to lead him to an understanding of his dilemma. He's going to rescue him, but there's a ton of work to do in order to get him there. Well, Elijah responds, and you can almost guess that this first response isn't going to be anything but a surface answer to a much deeper question. In fact, if we were to talk to the soul care team uh, here at the church, we would talk to any counselors, they would almost universally tell you that in a first session, almost certainly the counselee will never get to a place of really admitting what the problem is in the first session. And this is Elijah's first session, and, and he's not, he's not going to really get to the heart of the issue at all here. Verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the the, the God of hosts. My, My life's been all about God. I've been passionate about the things of God. I've been on mission. I've been all for Yahweh. And then he adds, 
But the people of Israel, I mean, the people you sent me to, God, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I mean, look what I've had to work with, God. These people that you sent me to are awful. This is an oh, woe is me kind of moment. How terrible my life is largely as a result of the thing that God had asked him to do. And then this last line, I even, I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. That sounds a bit puffed up and and like he has a very inflated sense of who he is and how important he is. We know and mentioned it last week. Obadiah was faithful and and working in the court of Ahab, and and Obadiah had hid a hundred prophets in caves to keep them safe. There were a hundred other prophets that were faithful. Elijah's just got a bit of an inflated sense of who he is. Now, I'm I'm simply going to say this. We need to put a bookmark on this conversation, God's question, Elijah's answer. We're going to put a bookmark on that because we're going to come back to it. Because he's not there yet. He's not there yet. From God's perspective, he still does not grasp his proper place. And I'm, I'm thinking again as God is looking at this and as God is moving so compassionately, so lovingly, so patiently toward Elijah that we need to come back to 1 Thessalonians 5.14 and see again that what Paul is telling us to do is encourage encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak and be patient with them all and how God is being so patient with Elijah in this moment. Being so patient with him because he, again, just isn't there yet. How grace-filled and kind God is being and how grace-filled and kind we need to be with one another as we're working through difficult issues. Because it's so hard for all of us It's so hard for all of us to keep our proper place with respect to God. That's a daily fight. So let's just be patient with one another as God is being patient with Elijah here. All right, another principle. What's this, our fourth one? Is this the fourth one? Pride says bigger, bigger is always better. But humility hears God's low whisper. Now, I want to take a moment really to step back into our history as a church and, and to confess something about how we as leaders, and maybe me particularly as a lead pastor, how I've led in the church. For many years, we fell into the trap of believing the mantra that bigger is always better. And we now believe something quite different than that. There's no doubt, though, that everyone likes success. Everyone wants to be successful. And whether you're leading yourself and achieving great things, achieving success, and you, you're enjoying your success, or whether you're a follower of a leader who achieves success, and so you're basking in the glow of the whole thing, you're part of it. We all enjoy the glory of that. But we understand that it can lead to some very dark places. It can lead to some unintended consequences. 
because pride upends even the sincerest motives. Pride upends even the sincerest motives. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with bigger. There's nothing wrong with success. But the temptation to believe that it must always be that way, that's what's devastating. That's what, that's what takes out leaders. That's what takes out churches. That's what crashes the spirit of people. And I am speaking from our own experience. God, humble us. Now look again back to Elijah. Look, God has, he's led Elijah to Mount Sinai. Now Mount Sinai is significant because this is the place where Moses met with God. And again, we talked in previous messages about the fact that, you know, Elijah and Moses, they're like one, two best prophets of all time. Moses had had this, this show me your glory moment you can read about that in Exodus 33. He had met with God. One commentator even went so far as to suggest, like, here's Elijah on Mount Sinai, and he's in this cave, and maybe this was exactly the same spot where God had met with Moses, where God had showed Moses his glory. Verse 11 and he said, the angel, presumably this is the, the angel who was ministering to him was also delivering the word to him. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And the Lord passed by. And this is just like Moses. Okay? Again, it's just tracking exactly like that Exodus 33 incident. The Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broken pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now think about the winds that we see, the tornado that came through Barry this summer, and it ripped roofs off houses and tossed cars and, 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 and destroyed homes, knocked them off their foundations, all of that is great wind. Or you think about hurricanes coming ashore off the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean and the devastation that those winds bring to those seaside cities and communities. Well, that's because all of those things, when those houses are flying apart or cars are being tossed around, those are all just things that we made. They're all lightweight. They're going to be destroyed, of course, in a great wind. But this great wind broke rocks. Now, think about that. This great wind shattered rocks. That's a powerful wind beyond anything we could possibly understand. But notice, the Lord was not in the wind as big and awesome and spectacular as that was, God wasn't in it. And after the wind, he goes on, after the wind, an earthquake, earthquakes bring incredible devastation to the earth. Think about uh, earthquakes we've seen in California or repeatedly in Haiti. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. A third example, verse 12, a fire. Think about the raging forest fires that we see and how we seem to be absolutely helpless to stop them. And, and, and uh, whole communities like Lytton, uh, B.C. were just consumed by the forest fires. But the Lord was not in the fire. And so this, this raging wind, this incredible earthquake, this raging fire, and God, as powerful as those things are, as awesome as they are, as life-altering as they are, God wasn't in them. And then after the fire, verse 12, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. Why did he do that? He didn't do that at the wind or the earthquake or the fire. Why did he do that? Because he knew the low whisper was God. He went out of the cave and he stood at the entrance. Why did he do that? Because that was his encounter with the glory of God. We're so often looking for the big thing. We want the splash. We want the pizzazz. And God's speaking to us in a low whisper. Patterson and Austell in their commentary said this, God does not always move in the realm of the extraordinary. To live always seeking one high experience after another is to have a misdirected zeal. The majority of life's service is in quiet, routine, humble obedience to God's will. See, only when I'm humble will I hear God. I can't hear Him if I'm proud. I can't hear Him if I think He only speaks through fire and earthquake and wind. Only when I'm humble will I hear God's low whisper, will I know that it's Him, and will I respond to His Word. It could come in a song lyric. It could come in a conversation with a friend who may not even know the crisis you're going through. It could come in a sermon, in a book, in a video. It could come in prayer. It especially comes as we get God's Word open in front of us. It comes when we're quiet and in that place, pulled apart from everything else in life and listening for the whisper of His Word. And so God has Elijah's attention. He has His attention through this whisper. He's fed him. He's given him rest. He's asked him a question. He's met with him in this moment. And he comes back not to a second question. Remember, we bookmarked that. He comes back to the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's answer is still the same. I've been very jealous for the Lord. The people, blah, 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 blah. They've forsaken your covenant. I'm the only one left. They're seeking my life to take it away. It's all the same stuff. He's hearing from God, but he's still not quite getting it. He's not yet aligned with the word. Yes, it's good that he's expressing his feelings. It's good that he's processing all of this out loud. But his perspective is still skewed. There's still some pride there that contributed to this crisis for him. And so the work has to continue. He still has to lean in to listen from the, to the Lord, and at least now he's able to hear him. At least now he is listening for the whisper. I'm, I'm encouraged by this because it, it demonstrates the struggle that it is for us to actually believe and live out the Word of God. 
If anyone thinks it's easy to just hear this book, to read it for ourselves, to understand it, and then live it out, they're missing something big about the Christian life. It's not easy. It is a struggle. Elijah, a prophet of God who speaks directly with God, was not getting it. Every day is a struggle. That's why it's so important that we, we reorient every Sunday and come to this place, whether we're on the live stream, watching it on demand, or here in the room, that we're actually coming back to this place every week to hear the Word of God and reorient to what God wants for us. That we do it with other people who are all in the exact same place, all broken, all hurting, all have things to work out, all have things to know and learn about the Lord. No one perfect, no one arrived, great big mob of misfits for Jesus. That's what we are. Hearing God ask the same question, of us. Where are you at? You know, where are you at? Where are you at? And us saying the same stuff back to him, still not quite getting it. That was Elijah. But that's us. And all I would appeal to us to hear from this is, have we put ourselves in a place to at the very least hear the low whisper of the Lord? Just get yourself to that place. Read the Word. Be in the Word. Be here every week. Be in a small group. Pour the Word of God into your life. Hear the low whisper of God. All right, finally, one last principle. Pride says you're indispensable. But humility tells me that my days are all numbered by God. Coming to a realization of our mortality and our replaceability is critical. It's one thing to come to grips with your mortality, to have a, an understanding that we're all going to die. That's not news to anyone, I hope. We're all going to die. That's our mortality. But to think about our replaceability, that in the course of things, before we die, before we pass from this life, there may be others who come along who are better at a thing than we are and that we may have to step aside or that our day may be over and, and others will step into our place. So dealing with our mortality and our replaceability, and that's exactly what happens here in verses 15 through 17, God gives Elijah some tasks to perform that are going to help him further uh, realign himself with the Word of God. He's not all, all the way to the end. He doesn't even fully understand everything that God wants him to know. He hasn't fully healed, and yet God's saying, in the healing process here, here's what I want you to do. Here's some jobs I want you to do. Go and do these things. And so the fact that we might be in a difficult place is no excuse to not still be engaged in the work that God has for us. That, in fact, is part of our healing. And in verse 18, God assures him that he's not the only one. I know you think you're the only one, Elijah. I know you have this inflated sense of who you are. You're not the only one. In fact, Obadiah is not the only one. The two times 50 that are hidden in caves aren't the only ones. In fact, God tells him there's 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. Again, he delivers the truth to him. 
And the final task that he gives to, to Elijah is the hardest. It's the most humbling because it's the one about him being replaced. And in verses 19 through 21, he casts his cloak on Elisha, symbolically passing over the mantle of being the prophet of God. It's only pride that tells us that we're indispensable. It's pride that tells us that we're so special as to deserve nothing but good and success in life. And instead, we ought to pray as the psalmist did. Listen to this from Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Listen, I want to get you to say that, and I want that to be your pledge to the Lord. Let's say it together. O Lord, well, you're not Anglicans, I'll tell you that much. Let's start that again. O Lord, Amen. And that's not defeatism. That's not fatalism. That is not pessimism. That is a humble, missional, purposeful, determined spirit to live every day for Jesus Christ when things are going my way and even when they're not. I'm going to pray for us. Um, the worship team is going to come back up here and help us worship a little bit more. We're going to go into the time of the Lord's table, and so we can prepare uh, for that together. Let's uh, pray right now. Father, I am uh, very grateful that you speak to us, but beyond speaking to us, especially in that low whisper, God, you care for us. You care about our physical well-being, our emotional, spiritual well-being, mental well-being. And God, you deliver this truth to us with such patience and kindness, knowing, God, that this is a struggle for us, and the evil one is constantly battling us to take over a place that's rightfully yours. So God, I pray that we would remain humble as we seek to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we approach this time around your table now, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be here in each person, filling us, blessing us with a sense of awe of the presence and power of God. Thank you, God, that you have provided this way for us to remember remember the Lord's death until he comes. And so God bless, sanctify this time, hear our worship and our prayers as we offer them to you in Christ's name.